Not at all. So that was the one fun thing I'm going to do today. (laughs) Because if you're tracking along on what we're talking about in this sermon series, um, I don't normally publish a title for my sermons because... It just seems wonky to me to have to title a sermon. The sermon is the Bible. The Bible gives me the points, gives me the big idea. So I very rarely, if you look at my notes, my title is usually um, May, you know, the date. (laughs) It's usually just the date, the date I preach this. So I can kind of gauge how long I got to wait before I can throw that one at you again. You know, kind of, okay, that one's been six years. I could pull out some stuff from that one again and recycle some of these things. Okay. But this one has a title, and the title of this one is called The Horrors of Hell. Welcome to Greenbelt this morning, and welcome to those of you joining us online. Don't turn your browser off, and the rest of you don't run away in terror. This is an important, important topic. For those of us who say we believe that this book is the Word of God, that if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and we build our, our lives around it, we have to explore even these tough topics. So last week, we started this series, One Minute After You Die, and we looked at kind of big picture. What happens when we die? And we saw how this tent, this flesh is temporary, our soul is eternal, and our soul faces judgment. Every single human being on the planet will be judged. And we saw that the Bible teaches that there's two types of judgment. And sometimes we as Christians, we get those judgments confused. And the first judgment that we learned about is what is called the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment that determines who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't belong to Jesus. This is what we call the salvation judgment. Who gets into heaven? See, and I know it's not a comfortable topic, but Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So as Christians, we either hold to that belief or we say Jesus is a liar. (laughs) I hold to that belief that Christianity is not one of many options It is the way. It is the truth. It's the path that leads to everlasting life and life abundant in the world today. Right? And so we saw that that is what separates humanity, is that decision. What do you do with Jesus? See, and so often we get confused over this as Christians, right? Because, especially when it comes to church, because we like church the way we like church, We like our traditions, we like our values, we like it that it's comfortable, we like it that it's familiar, we like that we know the people, we dress the same, we look the same, we smell the same, and all of these funny things in between. (laughs) And without even realizing it, you and I put roadblocks in front of people, where someone will make a decision saying, I don't want, they don't even hear the message of Jesus, they just see church, (laughs) the things we do, the things we want, right? And then sometimes people bust through that and they get into it, but then they just start doing church. They volunteer. They donate to things like For the House campaign. You know, they serve. They come on Sunday. And then this judgment happens. And Jesus turns to some people and says, I don't know you. And people respond, but, but, but I did the church thing. 
I volunteered. I did this. I did that. I did all of this good stuff. Because so many of us were raised to believe, just do the good stuff. But Jesus says, I don't know those people. So that's that first judgment that we looked at last week. And then the second judgment that we looked at is what is called the judgment seat of Christ. And that is the judgment when every single person who has put their faith in Jesus to deal with their sin, every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus himself is going to look at how we lived. And there are rewards based on how we lived. Again, how we lived, how we gave money, used our time, volunteered, blessed people. That doesn't get us into heaven. But there's a judgment on how you and I have used the life that God has given us, used the resources and the talents that God has given us. And the Bible teaches that some people will enter into heaven as one whose backside was burnt to a crisp. That's the thief on the cross who died beside Jesus. He didn't earn his salvation. He didn't have time to go to synagogue. He didn't have time to go to the priest to apologize. He didn't have time to make amends to the people that he wounded and hurt. He's dying. And he looks to Jesus and he says, Today, would you remember me when you come into your glory? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's the difference between those two judgments. And it's tricky Because we like the rules, we like the traditions, if you just obey, and legalism can kick in, and religion can kick in, and that's the way I was kind of raised, I was raised, you better be good or God hates you, you better follow the rules or maybe God's going to kick you out, you're not going to be his, And, and we live in that tension, so the whole big idea of the three weeks of this series is the reason we have to study and look at eternity is because what you and I believe about eternity will determine how you and I live today. What you believe about eternity determines how you live today. If you believe you're a cosmic accident and that your life serves no greater purpose in this world, you will live for your comfort and for your ease. But if you believe that you were created in the image and likeness of God, That you were created for such a time as this. That God created you in this time in history, in this city, at this church, with a divine spiritual gift to be used. If you believe what the Bible teaches, that you are a part of God's mission into the world, and that your life is to reflect the glory of God, that should radically change how we live from day to day. Even though today's topic is going to be tough, there's good news in it. There's great news in it. Next week, we're going to finish this series off, and my good friend Paulo Mugarura is going to come, and he's going to talk about the glories of heaven. I gave him the good topic, you know, and, and I can't think of anyone better to preach on the glories of heaven than my, my buddy Paulo. He's going to do an amazing job of this. Um, his message is going to be so encouraging and it's going to build you up and it's going to make you all pumped up and rejoicing about heaven. And today I'm going to do my best to go through these scriptures that we don't all leave here going, oh my goodness, what was that? <laughs> because we do, we have to talk about this tough topic of hell. And some of you might right away just go, well, why? <laughs> why do we need to talk about hell? Well, here's 
some statistics. I'm a math guy, math and science was my background before church and seminary, so I like data. In a recent article of Relevant Magazine, it stated that 74, 74% of Americans, not Christians, 74% of Americans believe in heaven. And in the same pool, they saw about 40%, 4 out of 10 Americans believe in a hell. So nearly 80% of Americans believing in some concept of glory, reward, rest, and only 40%, 4 in 10 Americans believe in some kind of judgment, separation from God whatever that looks like. And then in, this is what's fascinating about what these polls. And sometimes I wish these people would call me because I'd love to answer some of these questions. One of the questions is this. Uh, no word of a lie. This is what they asked in it. They asked in this poll, do you believe you will go to hell? Can you imagine getting that phone call? Like, seriously, you get in this phone call and say, hey, would you mind just spending five minutes to do a slight pull for our magazine? Sure, no problem. Do you believe in heaven? Yeah, I do. Do you believe in hell? No. Do you believe you're going to go to hell? What? Who do you think you are? Click. Right? So some people answered that question. Half of 1% of the people who answered believed they are going to hell. Who are those people? Right? In a culture that teaches you're good and there's nothing wrong with you and there's no such thing as sin and there's no such thing as judgment and God is love and his mercies endure forever and God wants no one to perish and God wants to bless everybody. Half of 1% said, yeah, I'm going. <laughs> I mean, I understand it, but I'm, I'm on a highway to it. We debated whether we should open Sunday today playing ACDC. Um, I voted no, because I don't want your emails on Monday. But this is the thing. And what we're seeing, and the reason why this is such an important topic to teach on, is we're seeing more and more and more Christians, churches, movements wrestling with this topic. Now, I am a big believer that Christians and churches should wrestle with difficult topics. I do not believe in ignoring them. I believe we should wrestle with them. I should. I believe in the tough stuff we should be praying and we should be fasting and we should be getting into the scriptures and we should be reading books and we should be finding mentors and experts. But here's what's fascinating about this topic is the Christian movements of our day that are wrestling with this topic are not wrestling with it biblically. They're wrestling with it morally. It's the difference between what does the Bible say compared to how does this make me feel? When you wrestle with something difficult morally, the argument goes something like this. But God is love. God is a loving father. And God wants no one to perish. He doesn't want anyone to be separated from him. He loves. And not only does he love, but I've heard he is love. So why would a loving God ever send someone to hell? I can't believe in that God. That's moralism. And I get it, because that's where my heart wants to go too. 
But the problem with putting our thoughts and our morals on this conversation is God himself has told us, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Even though we are created in the image and likeness of God, we don't think like God. He thinks differently than we do. He is different than we are. So we have to approach it based on what the word of God says, not what our feelings say. And again, because what we believe about eternity will determine how you live. If you believe, and I'm going to throw out, you might want to write these things down. If you're like a theology geek, write these terms down and Google it. This is great stuff to study. I can barely scratch the surface in one two-hour sermon. So, um, all right, three of you are still listening. Okay, good, good, good. Um, But some of these theology, there's a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of theology happening in our Christian movement today, right? And so if you believe in the doctrine called universalism, That is the idea that everybody goes to heaven. Everybody. Because Jesus died for the sins of the world, everybody goes to heaven. If you're a universalist, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you rejoice in the glories of God. (laughs) Right? Doesn't matter. None of it matters. Church doesn't matter. Different religions don't matter. Nothing matters. It's all going to pan out. It's all going to work out in the end. Right? If you're... Let's say the extreme version of a Calvinist. If you don't know what that means, Google it. It's okay. That you believe in the complete total sovereignty of God. That Jesus died for the elect. Only certain people are going to benefit from the death of Jesus. And those people will get saved. Because God has elected it and he is sovereign. He will ensure it happens. And so I don't have to do anything. I don't have to share my faith. Because God's going to save them. It's already ordained. It's already done. See, two extreme examples. Because how you understand eternity, what you believe about eternity, will change how you live today. And the big danger with a lot... I know, this is a long introduction. We're getting there. That's why I said it's two hours. Um, The danger of using moralism, using our feelings, using philosophy to talk about a a difficult subject, the only way you can land on a lot of these interpretations is you literally have to throw away the teachings of Jesus. You have to ignore the words of Jesus in order to land on a lot of these positions. The position that every religion points to God. You have to do away with what Jesus said, that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but me. What do you do with that? You can't, as a follower of Jesus, say, ah, he's smoking something that day. Maybe stepped in something. I don't know. He was having a bad day. Ignore it. The topic of judgment, the topic of hell, to just get rid of it, to ignore it. you got to get rid of the teachings of Jesus. Like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many go through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is talking about this eternity. 
this separated from God, with God or apart from God. And he says the path that's leading people away from God is huge. And a lot of people are on it. And we need to do something about it. Because the path to life is narrow. What you believe about hell will determine how you live today. There's a very famous quote, and I'm sure you've heard this quote before. I I, I couldn't find who officially was the first person to say this. If you know who it was, send me an email on it. Uh, But there's a famous quote that says, The greatest thing the devil ever accomplished was convincing the world he doesn't exist. You see, the greatest thing that the devil accomplished is to convince the world he doesn't exist. You see, if you can do away with the idea of sin, I'm a good person. I don't have sin. There's no sin. right? It's moralism. It's what's good for me, what's true for me, as long as it's okay for me. If you can do away with the concept of sin, why do you need a savior? Why do you need someone to die for you? If you can do away with the concept of hell, with the concept that there is a spiritual enemy out there, it changes how we live. When the enemy, when Satan convinces us there's no hell, we don't take it seriously. We live for however we want. We justify the sin in our lives. We have no righteous fear of God. And not that this is a message about fear and guilt and shame. But when you understand the teachings on this topic, it needs to, we have to hold our lives in light of this teaching. Does my life reflect that I believe the stuff that we're about to look at is true? Or am I living a ridiculously self-centered life? In, in the modern church, my, my heart is breaking more and more and more for the North American church. We are so self-absorbed. We pick the church based on the program, the like, the music, the thing that I want, me, 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 my, my, my. And we pastors, we feed you that. Because we're trying, we got jobs we got to protect. <laughs> and we're competing with the church down the road. We're competing with, we read this book, we change this, we change that. We're living very self-centered lives. We idolize our comfort. We don't want anyone to think we're weird. I don't want to, I don't want to have a difficult conversation about hell with someone at work. That's ridiculous. Why would I ever do that? I could lose my job. You know, I don't want to like sacrifice you know my time, my money. I don't want to do that. Persecution? Wow, let's pray for our brothers and sisters on the mission field in the other parts of the world, but for me, I'll pass. Because we love the world. We love what the world has to offer us. We love the comforts of the world. We love the sin of the world. And that those roots can take deep, deep root if we're not careful. So how you and I approach this topic of hell is so important. It's so important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this up into two parts. We're going to look at two reasons why hell exists from the Bible. Two reasons why hell exists, not my opinion, it's in the Bible. And then we're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 16. Jesus used parables 
to describe the things of God. Right? Now, you don't take parables word for word literally, but they give us glimpses into the kingdom of God. And he actually teaches a parable in Luke 16 that gives us glimpses of what hell is like. And we're going to look at that as well. So first, two reasons why hell exists. The first reason that hell exists is that hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. The reason that there is a hell predominantly that we see in scripture is so that God can righteously deal with Satan. Again, the greatest thing that Satan's ever done is convince us that he doesn't exist. The second greatest thing he's ever done is convince us he's a cartoon character. That he's a little baby in diapers with little red horns and a pitchfork and he's sitting on your shoulder going, eat the cake, eat the cake, eat the cake. And the little angel goes, no, don't eat the cake. That's going to, you know, raise your blood sugar. Eat the cake. Okay. And we turn the devil into a cartoon character. The Bible paints a very different picture of the devil. You see, the devil wanted to be worshipped. He was an angel of God whose function was to direct the worship of humanity back to God. And he said, no, I want that worship for myself. So God casts him out of heaven, and the other angels who followed him, they're angels, they're angelic beings. We kind of just look at monsters and things like that as devils and demons. I think they're gorgeous and beautiful, and we can't get our brain around how majestic they look. That's why they're liars and deceivers, because who's going to follow a gremlin? Not me. (laughs) Right? Okay. If you didn't get the gremlin reference, it's because you're too young. Google that one. Okay, But the devil paints a very scary picture of our spiritual enemy. The Bible paints a picture that behind every single addiction that humanity is facing, it's because of the devil. That we fill our lives with things that only God can fill. We fill our lives with alcohol, with drugs, with food, with pornography. And it fills us, it consumes us, and that little voice says, you need this, and feeds it. The devil creates a culture of abuse in the church, of fear, of pain, of shame. Little voice, God could never love you. You're not good enough. You could never. If only someone really knew what, who you really were. The Bible names the devil a lot of different things. Calls, the Bible calls the devil the destroyer. The deceiver, the dragon, the dark angel, the serpent, the adversary, the enemy, the tempter, the wicked one, the thief, the father of lies, the prince of darkness, the angel of the abyss. He has one goal. His goal is to remove worship away from God. And here's the thing, as a Christian... If you have put your faith in Jesus, I believe what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible teaches that once you put your faith in Jesus, you are saved and you are saved for all eternity. That nothing can pluck you from the hands of Jesus once you are his. When your name is in the book of life, like we saw last week, you belong to God. But if your spiritual enemy can ruin your witness in this world, that's a huge win for him. And I believe our culture is perfectly designed specifically to wipe out Christian men. You take out a good, solid Christian man, and the shrapnel from that is ginormous. 
You take out a pastor, the shrapnel from that is ginormous. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to kill your faith. He wants your, weak, your faith to be weak. He wants you to be ruined financially. He wants to destroy your marriage, and he wants to take your kids away from God. That's his plan. Woo! Light and fluffy today. John shows us why God has a hell. The Apostle John had a vision of the end of days when Jesus will return in judgment over the world. And John saw, and he wrote this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, and the devil who deceived them, the devil who deceived the nations, was thrown into the lake of of burning sulfur. The devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God has hell. The reason hell exists is so that God can deal righteously with his spiritual enemy. This lake of burning sulfur, that's where the devil will spend eternity for his crimes against God. You know, this verse talks about a beast and a false prophet. And depending on your interpretation of end times, it could be a literal person or it could be a principality. Think of the principalities that exist today that are trying to get our focus off of Jesus. Have you noticed our culture today has no problem talking about God? None. I have never had a single person mad at me for talking about God. Ever. Asking for prayer, not a problem. Never. Suddenly I say Jesus. And people lose their minds on this. There's principalities at work that if the path is narrow, let's have lots of God talk, lots of spiritual talk, but stop talking about Jesus. <laughs> right? And so that could be these principalities, the beast, the false prophet, you know, or it could be a literal person. But this hell exists so that God can deal righteously with that. And the second reason that hell exists is so that God can deal righteously with unbelievers. And this is where kind of that moralism kicks in, right? Where we go, well, that's not fair. It sucks. I don't like this. A loving God wouldn't do that. The other night, my wife and I, Danielle, we were driving And I don't know what we were doing. I don't remember where we were coming from. But I burnt right through a red light this week. I I didn't even slow down. Like, it it wasn't even close. You know, sometimes when it's yellow and you're starting to cross the intersection and it's yellow, I don't know where my brain was. I just, right through it. And it's funny. So if you drive with me regularly you will get to know one of my major sins in life. (laughs) And it's the major sin of um, self-righteous judgment. (laughs) Or justice. Sorry, it's justice. I want justice. So if I were to see somebody else do exactly what I did this week, you know what the first thing I say is? It's not, oh, I hope they're okay. (laughs) Oh, I should pray for that person. Hope they don't get distracted and have an accident on the way home. No, you know what the first thing I think is? Where are the police when you need them? <laughs> Justice. I demand it. I crave it. 
And I burn right through the red light. And Danielle goes, where are the police when you need them? I don't remember if that was your exact quote, but it felt like that was your quote. And I was like, no, but babe, I had a reason for doing this. You see, like I know in our relationship, we've been trying to grow in our relationship and kind of meaningful conversation is important to Danielle and eye contact is so important to her. You know, she doesn't like when we're shoulder to shoulder. So I'm trying to make a, a spiritual, emotional connection with my wife while we're talking in the boom, red light. Oh, babe, but look, I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm growing in our relationship together. Like, so that justifies going through the red light. That's moralism. That's judging these things based on our feelings. We always make the excuse for ourselves, right? But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our things. And God must deal with sinners. It's in his nature. He can't change it. Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Talking about God, he says, God, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of our Lord. That's tough teaching. I don't like it, but it's there. I can't ignore it and I can't morally wish it away. And so what I believe about hell with God's righteous way of dealing with Satan and dealing with unbelievers, what I believe about this will determine how I live today. So let's look at this parable that Jesus teaches in Luke 16, because I, again, I'm more and more and more, I believe, if you don't fully grasp this concept, then you can't fully grasp the grace of God. Like, if you don't understand what you were saved from, it will impact how you worship. It'll impact how you serve. It'll impact how you live your life. It'll impact how you are a witness to people around you, right? We worship God, not because we like the music. We worship God because of what he has done for us. It doesn't matter what the style of worship is. You should be able to drop any Christian in any church, on any city, in any town, in any hut around the world. And you should be able to close your eyes and worship him. In any language. But that comes out of a heart of understanding what you're saved from. Right? So let's look at this parable that Jesus teaches here in Luke chapter 16. I tried to do this without my glasses in the first service. Failed miserably. Let's put the glasses on. Here we go. Jesus tells this parable. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's tables. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's nasty. 22 continues, says, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his fingers in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. 
while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And then Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone is raised from the dead. Jesus just points to himself there. Because Jesus has been teaching that he was going to die. And that he was going to be raised from the dead three days later. That he was on this mission of God to deal with sin, to deal with the devil. And Jesus says in this parable, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe it. It's not, we don't like it. I don't want to believe it. So four quick things that we can see from this story. Again, it's a parable. So we don't split churches over this. And whether it's word for word, exactly what hell is going to look like, or if it's just ideas. But here are four principles that we can see from this parable. Right? The first principle is this idea that the rich man is fully conscious and fully aware. There's another doctrine that's out there. Again, Google it. It's a lot of fun to study this stuff called annihilism. And it's the idea that the unrepentant sinner's soul will be destroyed. And that comes, they get that from the teachings of Jesus where he said, we saw it last week, do not fear man who can only kill your body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul. So it gives the impression that God can destroy souls. Yes, he could, but we see in other scriptures scriptures that he does not. And so think of nihilism, for example, as, okay, so I just am destroyed. Who cares? I already believe, and my non-Christian friends already believe that when they die, they're just dust and they just go away and it doesn't matter. So who cares if my soul is just destroyed? doesn't matter. But we see here in this story that this rich man is fully conscious and fully aware of his situation. His soul is not destroyed because the Bible teaches that the soul is eternal. It also teaches us, the principle that we see in here, is that the rich man's eternal destiny is fixed cannot be changed, irrevocably fixed. Again, we create other doctrines around this because we don't like it. Right? And that's the doctrine of purgatory. A third option. Heaven, hell, purgatory. Purgatory is, ah, you can work off your sin. You have a second chance. You know, hey, if you pay 20 bucks to the church... Well, we'll write an indulgence for you, and we'll give less time in purgatory for your family. That's why Martin Luther freaked out and started the Reformation, <laughs> teaching something that wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> but we create doctrine to make us feel better about this. But we see, he talks about it in verse 26, that the chasm, no one can cross it. <laughs> it's decided at that point. <laughs> you can't go from one side to the other side. 
the rich man, the other principle that we can see from this is the rich man, this is a fascinating one, is the rich man seems to understand that his suffering is just. The rich man doesn't start complaining, Abraham, this isn't fair. He doesn't say that. He says, Abraham, go tell my brothers so this doesn't happen to them. He knows he's getting what he deserves. This, if, if you haven't figured this out, this is like almost identical to the Christmas carol. You know, it's Ebenezer Scrooge where a ghost shows up and says, oh, you're going to be visited by three ghosts. Don't follow the path I'm on. Unfortunately, we don't have Christmas ghosts to help us out with this situation. So the man knew that his suffering was just. And the fourth thing that we see is that the rich man begged and pleaded for someone to help his brothers know Jesus. Would somebody please tell my family? Please. Because he knows what he is getting. He knows it's just because of his sin. He knows it's eternal. He knows it's suffering. And his heart's desire is someone tell my family. But they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Why do we need to talk about this? We need to talk about it because what you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. The devil does not want us to think this is real. He doesn't want our culture to think this is real. He doesn't want us to think it's a big deal. The devil wants us to think that the church exists for us, for our pleasures, our wants, our desires, to please us, to feed us, to entertain us, to be my social club, my social network, my friend group, my potluck group, my hobby group. None of those things are bad. But if you think that's the mission of the church, we're off mission. You know, and a lot of times at this point, this is where people say, wow, this is amazing that you believe that, but holy smokes, I want nothing to do with this God of yours. <laughs> because why would a God do this to good people? And when someone tells me that, I ask them, the first question I ask them when people says, why would a God do this to good people? The first question I ask is, do you have children? And for those who have children, I go, how long did it take you to teach your child to be selfish? And they look at me going, man, my kid just came out that way. It's like they kind of came out and they started speaking. No, mine, Jimmy, <laughs> punching the other kid for the toy. They came out that way. Society didn't make them that way. We're greedy, we're selfish, and we'd kill each other for what we wanted if we were capable at that age. Our family system and our society teaches them to be good. But their heart is wicked. Wicked. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But that is why we rejoice in what Jesus has done. When we understand that we're all wicked, that there's nothing any of us could have done, that's why the sacrifice of Jesus means so much to us as followers of Jesus. That it wasn't religion that keeps us out of this eternity in hell. That it's God's love for us that Jesus would die in our place to pay for this sin thing that we all have. 
You don't need a theological education to realize that there's sin in people's lives. And even the people who deny that there's sin, when you really kind of get at it, they go, yeah, I guess I am. (laughs) Because we know. (laughs) We just don't like it. (laughs) But we take bread and we remember that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We reflect on the teachings of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the church in Rome where he said the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, he says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Jesus, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. We rejoice that, yes, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but we have life and life everlasting because Jesus' body was broken for us. That's the mission of the church. That's why the church exists. That's why we do everything that we do. So we're going to take communion together. This is a time where we as Christians, we just take a little piece of bread, we take a cup of juice, and we remember the body and blood of Jesus spilt and broken for us to save us from this. (laughs) But remember, it's not always just about us. Show of hands, how many of you have someone who you love, who you care for? A family member, a child, a parent, friend at work, colleague at school, who doesn't believe in Jesus? Raise your hand. I want to see them. I want to see it. I want to see it. It's pretty much everybody. It's pretty much everybody. And we split churches over the dumbest things. And we get distracted by the dumbest of arguments. And I think it breaks the heart of God. When we can't look past these things, we can't look at the body of Jesus broken for us. Because there are people who are crying out, would someone please tell my family? And the answer to that cry is us. (laughs) We need to tell their family. We need to tell our family. It's uncomfortable. It's not fun. I know. (laughs) But Jesus gives us the strength to do this. So when you take this bread together, when you take a piece of it, hold it in your hand. We're going to take it together. And I want you to thank God for what you have been saved from but I don't want it to be about you. And then I want you to pray quietly for the person that you just raised your hand for so that someone would tell them and maybe that someone would be you. If you're here today and maybe you come from a different Christian background, as long as you believe that Jesus died for you, you're welcome to join us in communion. But if you're here today and you're not too sure what you believe or you you don't believe in Jesus, it's so great that you're here. Hopefully I didn't scare you too bad with this message today. But uh, we just ask that you let this bread and the cup go by. And so our ushers are going to hand this out now and we'll take this together. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You know, I get it. This is hard. 
it's hard teaching. And at one point, Jesus was teaching his followers, and that was the exact response that everybody had. Like, this is hard teaching. And so Jesus said, well, are you going to leave then? And the disciples said, well, where else would we go? (laughs) Because you've got the words of life. (laughs) If God is just, he has to righteously and justly deal with the devil and with unbelievers. He has to. But because he is not only loving, but because he is love, he has dealt with the, he has dealt with it in a way so that no one should have to go there. <laughs> because Jesus died for us. And when we get the whole doctrine of hell, and we understand why it's there, it changes everything on how we live. How we worship, how we rejoice, how we share, how we live our lives, how we do church. <laughs> So that we could see God glorified in lives being transformed. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and thank you that we could come together and worship you here. And I pray for all of us, Lord, um, that we wouldn't obsess and beat ourselves up and, and it, when it comes to this topic, Lord. But that we would, um, even in the tough topics, know that you are good. Know that you are just. Know that you are merciful. Knowing that you are love. And Father, I pray that even this topic of the horrors of hell would change us to live more and more for you. To be salt and light everywhere that we go. And for those who may have heard this and and this is new or maybe they've been wrestling with it, um, I hope you didn't take today as a fear-mongering thing, as a guilt thing. But this is just what we believe And it's what we proclaim. But because God loves you so much, you can turn from the path, this broad path, and go on the smaller path of righteousness that leads to life by simply praying, God, thank you that Jesus died for me. Today I accept him in my life. Make me new. The Bible says you do that, you jump path from the broad to the narrow. And then you're part of God's plan and mission to see other people jump path. I like to say the church is in the real estate business. We're depopulating hell together as we trust God. So Holy Spirit, as we worship, as we collect our offering, continue to speak to us and guide us in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.